and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the 473rd show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Ed Broders, retired farmer, and ROI history buff, and Jen Broders, teacher at Pleasant Valley Middle School. And we're going to be talking about the Cedar County Cow Wars of 1931. The history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Brett Menard. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. So, to begin, welcome back to the show, Ed and Jen. Thank you. Thanks, Jay. It feels Uh, weird to be on this end of the mic, so to speak. I've never been that way, so it's kind of odd. Yeah, um, for, for those of you who are students of ROI history, Jen was what we used to call a decider for years and years, as well as at least pretending to be the editor for scripts, which she never got a chance to actually do because John Keeley never actually gave her a script. In time for me to edit. And I must say, it's going to be a strange show not to have John here mispronouncing my name. Oh, so well, I we're going like to get the clearer. Right I'll, I'll see if I can, how many different ways I can do it okay. as a memorial <laughs> to John. Join the club. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. Okay. Um, so, uh, We call this first segment History is Local, and our job is to give a little bit of background to our listeners for the subject. So, Ed, I guess I'm going to start you off with a first here. So what's going on in Cedar County in 1931? Um, well, I should defer to my wife on that, so I will. Okay. Well, do. yeah, um, because this is the paper I wrote for my uh, my master's degree 13 years ago. So it wasn't all just in 1931, but uh, there were several months there where there was TB testing of cows, tuberculosis testing. And this was going on all over the place. But for some reason in Cedar County during the summer and fall of 1931, things kind of came to a head and farmers were up in arms, uh, literally, with pitchforks and all kinds of things uh, because vets were supposed to come to their farms to test their cows for tuberculosis. And when we get to this other part, Ed is more the expert on what the cow actually represented for the family. But prior to this in the 19 teens and early 20s, farmers had been getting great prices for for their animals, for their crops, and eventually that started to decline. And so actually the Great Depression that began for most of America in 1929 had begun for farmers in America in the mid-1920s. The prices bottomed out, the land prices bottomed out, a lot of farmers were losing their farms because in the boom times, of course, they're expanding, they're, they're buying land and more animals and trying to implement new technologies like tractors and all of those things. So they had a lot of money sunk in and then the prices bottomed and then the, the Great Depression happened um, and that kind of led everything into a tailspin. So I think um, there was a lot of populism going on in America politically at that time. And including in Iowa, um, Senator uh, Smith Brookhart was a big proponent of prop- populism. And add to that, there was a radio station man out of Muscatine by the name of Norman Baker, who was kind of the Rush Limbaugh of his day. Uh, ad infinitum and 
he seemed to fuel the fire with a lot of his populist ideas and he got on the side of the farmer and so when Cedar County occurred because his range hit a lot of the areas of Cedar County then the farmers were furious because they didn't want their animals to be condemned and they wouldn't get very much money for them and they were concerned there was collusion between the government and the meat packers and it's kind of like oh i don't know today where we get <laughs> false information right. and then people get pissed off at the government and yeah and so that's kind of cedar county is where it happened it didn't really seem to happen like this anywhere else Okay, so Ed, I am going to ask that second question then, because we are used to a farm economy in which everything is highly specialized. I just grow grain. In fact, I very often just grow a, a particular type of grain, or I just have hogs, or I just do cattle. So talk to us a little bit about what the, the farm economy looks like in 1931. Well... The cropping system was vastly different, and farms were much more self-sufficient. The uh, commercial fertilizer industry did not exist, um, and pesticides were not part of your farming scheme either. Uh, the, the fertility system on the farm was based on forages and livestock, and farms had several livestock enterprises. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, the the testing regimen was for breeding stock, both beef cattle and dairy cattle, but the dairy cattle got most of the attention because it had been learned, I think in the teens, that tuberculosis could be transmitted to humans by contaminated meat or milk. The, the um, a cow was a steady source of income and in that time in Iowa unless you were close to a town very little of the milk was sold for human consumption the bulk of it you you the farmers took their cream to the local creamery to be made in typically into butter but the rest of the fluid milk was used on the farm to to be used as a protein source for young stock, be that chickens, pigs, or cats, because soybeans were not in the equation. At that time, what few soybeans there were were raised as a forage crop. And the, but the other thing about the cow was that the, the average value of a cow at that time was about $300, and she brought, if she was condemned, she brought about two and a half cents a pound. So a thousand pound cow was worth 25 bucks. And there was a way to visually determine how much of her carcass was saleable for human consumption and how much had to be condemned. And so the packers, knowing this, and there was no way to determine before slaughter, paid the bottom dollar. And the state made up one-third of the leftover, whatever was left of the value of the cow, the state made up a third of that. And the federal government made up a third, and the farmer was expected to eat one-third of this, and, and farmers couldn't, simply couldn't afford that. And this was really kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Sure. All right. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. 
The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guests for today are Ed Broders, retired farmer and ROI history buff, and Jen Broders, teacher at Pleasant Valley Middle School. And we're talking about the Cedar County Cow Wars of 1931. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Brett Menard. And Rick, as the political scientist of the group, why don't you start us off? Yes, I want to talk about uh, uh, war strategies and uh, (laughs) (laughs) who won the war, Jen? (laughs) Oh, golly. Not the cows. Um, (laughs) The government won the war. Um, There was uh, the biggest standoff happened uh, on the farm of Jake Lanker of Tipton. And um, what happened was his, uh, he, uh, oh, I'm sorry, it's not Jake Lanker's farm, but one of the farms in Tipton, um, there was a a man whose cows finally got tested. And when they came back to read the test, um, they were met with about a thousand farmers. And (laughs) the, uh, the vet was concerned he had um, for whatever reason the Appanoose County Sheriff was with him and drew a line in the dust pulled out his gun and said whoever crossed the line was going to face more trouble than he bargained for and at the that was when the testing happened and everything was fine ish but when they came back to read the test then um, the vet Peter Malcolm um ended up having to seek medical attention because the farmers came forward and they broke the headlights, windshield, cut the gas line on his car, slashed the tires, and it was kind of a mess. And that was that was when um, Governor Dan Turner um, said, enough is enough and this is going to stop, and they called out the National Guard. Hey, Brett. So how quickly did this escalate? Did, was this something where it was a, a slow burn and each um, sequence a, a added? Or did this go, was this more of a camera switch where just instantly people were um, trying to raise a, a posse of their neighbors? Well, it started off uh, slow. It started off with legal routes that um, Lenker and some of the other farmers were taking starting in about 1926, and they took it to the courts and said, this is illegal, we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't have to be forced to do this, because in many of the Iowa counties, the farmers were allowed to vote on whether or not they would allow their cattle to be tested, and apparently a lot of them in Cedar County had said, yes, we vote that we should be able to, but then they brought it up in court. And so they fought back and forth for about five years in court on this deal. And it wasn't until 1931 when things finally apparently just kind of petered out in the courts. And 
they were supposed to test and that was the law and that's how it was supposed to happen so 1931 the summer to september of 1931 which is when it ended it kind of went hot and heavy for a you know two or three months when the national guard got called out and it wasn't just in cedar county as a matter of fact it was also in muscatine county because um there was a certain farmer by the last name of broders who went to uh the pokey for punching a vet we won't we won't um pick on him though but uh yeah so that's where all this started for me actually is when i found out my husband's grandfather slugged a vet and had to uh, get taken in for it so that's where it all started but um it wasn't all just in cedar county but again it's it's that area where norman baker was broadcasting and he would just really let fly because he was very anti-government and that's part of what really fueled some of this um so I want to follow up on that because I, having just had four years of intense populism and, and all the things that have, that have gone on because of that, um, and having had, what, a couple of decades of Rush Limbaugh and the folks who he, he spawned, um, both in radio and in television, how did you know how was this guy's inflammatory speech you know i i think our public doesn't quite appreciate most of us how powerful radio was at that point where you didn't have a television set and you didn't have live whatever um you know how big of a deal do we have any sense from your research of just how much of an impact this guy had oh lord it wasn't just here he peddled cancer cures on the radio he um had magazines that he had published that had stories in them about how the government was harming the farmer he made sure to broadcast at the dinner hour so that farmers would hear him he actually even came to tipton at one point for a court hearing to support jake lenker who was his friend um he uh, he did all kinds of very shifty, you know, skeezy things to make lots and lots of money. He made it during the Depression, mind you, $250,000 a year oh off of God. all of the things he sold. His name was on coffee. It was on tea. It was on tobacco. It was on everything you could buy for your home. Chick brooders. It was on everything. And so, um, and his radio station was TNT, The Naked Truth. <laughs> and by the end of this, his license was pulled. And he went down to Mexico and set up a station just across the border and had this fabulous hacienda that he lived in and everything else. Um, but he ended up, they, it, it, didn't, it didn't work down there like it did here, but... Um, that was really the thing he and he talked on the radio too about he didn't think the tests were valid and he really pushed it I think he saw an opportunity to make a buck on the back of these farmers and I think that's what he, he took it and ran with it and I think it's important to remember who his audience was and their educational level because microbiology in 1931 was in its infancy compared to today it was in its infancy and you have to remember that these farmers 
a handful may have gone to high school. Um, most of them probably went through eighth grade, one-room country school, and the rest of them may have not made it to eighth grade. So this is not a well-educated audience. But, but it's also the other part of that is, too, the, the whole populist movement and Smith Brookhart, the senator from Iowa, pushing this is the idea that you distrusted the more educated folks from the cities. Uh, 1920 was the first census where there were more people living in cities than on farms. And there was a big shift. And, it, you know, there was always this folksy yeoman farmer, Jeffersonian ideal, you know, bucolic life in the country. But they also, it was also depicted as, um, you know, man of the soil, not man of education. And so it pitted these two groups against each other. And uh, quite frankly, that's what we've seen in the last four or five years as well, that education is seen as dubious because it undercuts the common man. And that's a problem. You bet. Rick. Well, I'm, I'm really stunned that uh, all these years I've been dealing with a grandson of a criminal, a war criminal. <laughs> Misdemeanor offense. <laughs> Still is a war criminal. <laughs> you mentioned, both of you mentioned in the opening, uh, uh, there was uh, allegations, spurious, uh, baseless allegations, that there was collusion between the meatpackers and the government. Was, in fact, there collusion between the meatpackers and government? I don't think there's anything you can prove at this point. But shall I speculate? Um, It's entirely possible, but it would be more something like that. You would see more today because today in this country, I think there are only three, four meat packers for the entire country. Um, But it was a concern. There was, you know, there was always this concern about big business and government in bed together. Um, The railroads, uh, that was one thing the farmers were concerned about, too, is that they felt the, the railroads were taking advantage because they had to ship them to Chicago, and that became more and more expensive, even though they weren't getting reimbursed, really, much from the government for those cattle. Um, so I suspect there probably could have been, but I don't know. I'll let Ed kind of run with this one. Well, as I mentioned earlier in the show, um, there was no way to tell before slaughter whether an animal was infected or not infected or to what extent they were infected as far as the meat being consumable by humans and so the packers naturally not knowing what they were getting paid bottom price and not all the time but apparently a fair amount of the time there was some part of that animal's carcass that was salvaged for human consumption Um, and so I can understand why it would have the appearance uh, of something fishy going on. Okay, Brett. So after World War One, um, we see um, farmers who had um, increased production because of the war, kind of getting the rug pulled out from under them did that kind of help prepare the the soil as it were for this uh distrust of the government that people were able to capitalize on um i would say yes to some extent because 
even though the government didn't control the prices necessarily, but the, for a, several years at the end of the war, because of course Europe could do nothing at that point, um, and it wasn't until I think 1921 or 22 that farmers in um, like Denmark and Germany were able to start producing enough, uh, for example, hogs in order to meet what needed to be met. And, and some grains, and then the prices in America then began to decline. I don't want to say it's like, in a way, it's almost like war profiteering. In a way, it kind of was, but it wasn't. I, the farmers never get to set prices. I think that's one thing we have to understand. Farmers don't get to set their prices. It's a commodity. Markets are the things that do that, correct, Ed? Yes, um, and the thing to remember about the 1920s was that at that time, there was no safety net financially uh, or any system to manage supply and demand on agricultural commodities. And the urban economy was booming right along, and quite frankly, they didn't care what was going on. And then we have the Republican administrations of the 1920s who viewed any kind of farm program as more or less out of bounds and large-scale program there were a couple the mcnary haugen act was in 1928 and that was one thing that helped set up price supports but it was such a complicated formula that it never really got off the ground and there was one other act that was passed about that same time and oh lord for the life of me i'm trying to remember it and i'm trying to find it here but it did help set some price supports but in 1931, those supports um, were stopped because there was a commission that was working on it and, and doing that. And in 1931, that ended, and that was probably another part of that. And 60% of farmland in the 20s, uh, by 1920, 60% of the farmland in Iowa was under mortgage. And that is an extraordinarily high number because, as um, as we discussed, during World War I, the government's message was produce, produce, produce. So farmers bought more land. They borrowed money to perhaps go from horses to a tractor. And then the bottom literally fell out. Right. So I'm interested then, it's always a, in any country, but particularly in the United States, it's always a very interesting and, and complicating and scary thing when the the muscle of the government gets used against the population itself and so when iowa calls out the national guard and these guys show up as as a kid of the 60s um you know i i remember pretty vividly what you know the the conflict that was happening between the folks who were in the national guard and were suddenly being sent in to deal with protesters and so forth and so on who were roughly their age or at least within a few years uh, of them and and how you know the the emotions that were involved in that situation so how did that deployment play out within uh cedar county were there were there clashes? I, I assume, because I don't remember hearing about it much, I assume we didn't have large-scale gun battles going on. Um, but but how did that get uh, how did that get managed in, in when these folks had to come face to face with each other? Well, I'm going to let Ed talk about his uncle's farm and the one injury that we know of. The uh, National Guard deployed about 1,700 troops to Cedar County. 
And I just learned today from a woman that I've known all my life um, that there was actually a gunfire, a firearm casualty that occurred in Durant where some of the uh, guardsmen were bivouacked on the southwest corner of Durant. And this, this woman had played cards for decades with another woman who had grown up and was a young woman in 1931. And it had been made clear to the townspeople they were supposed to stay away from the National Guard encampment on the southwest corner of town. Um, but for whatever reason, this young woman named Vera um, went down there, and she apparently did not like to talk about this as far as details, but um, she got thought, shot through the leg. And her stocking with the bullet hole in it is in the museum in Durant. <laughs> and so, as far as we know, she is the only casualty, if not just the firearm casualty, but she's the only known casualty. Just, despite <laughs> the fact that there were, uh, was a machine gun nest on Ed's uncle's farm, which was one of the high points you could look down over Durant, um, but... We farm- have a photo of that, don't we? I the, think so. There is yeah. a, there is yeah. a photo um, online of uh, five National Guardsmen with a machine gun um, located at the time on the William Hogan farm, which was a mile and a half northwest to Durant and sits on the hill. Um, William Hogan's son, a few years later, would become my uncle Henry when he married my dad's sister. But um, there was a party line phone tree system amongst the rural folks and the Hogan farm was the perfect place to observe the movement of the National Guard troops out of the west end of Durant and so when that occurred um, my uncle's father apparently was part of the network but they would get on the horn to the part people on the party line and it would spread and their code word was Word, wood to chop and hay to pitch, which was meant that somebody was coming out from Durant. <laughs> um, so, Rick, you are going to get the last question for this segment before we, uh, we wrap things up. So make it a good one and, and uh, figure you got oh. about two minutes. Where, where do I go? I've gotten like nine questions. Actually, uh, question I'm three. curious if, if Cedar County had 1,700 troops uh, dispatched and with one bullet to take care of Vera's hosiery. <laughs> how many, how, what was the total number of uh, National Guards at the state uh, dispatched for uh, this war? Not uh, only in Cedar County, but uh, Muscatine and other places. Well, the 1,700 that were um called out to Cedar County represented about one-third of the total guard force in Iowa. And most of them were sent initially sent to Tipton, and if you read the research, um, it was almost like a circus atmosphere. The merchants in town were glad to see them. They had an open house and such. The band played uh, out at the Cedar County Fairgrounds. Um, so it was a bit of a circus atmosphere, but that was, it was about one third of the available personnel. And I'm not sure. I just don't know if they were ever called out to other counties. I don't, I didn't get a sense from the research that they were. 
I don't think other counties got involved as much here. And there, yeah, there didn't seem to be anything else. It did spread a little bit from Cedar County through Muscatine um, down to Henry County at Mount Pleasant and then some to Des Moines. But it was it was getting weaker as it went. Okay. Well, as you guys know, we always give the guests the last word. Um, in this case, two words both of you get <laughs> so jen and ed uh why do you think knowing about the cedar county cow war of 1931 is relevant in today's world i think it's relevant because um it it's clear that misinformation and false news have not just started uh in the last what decade or two that we've seen this before and that things cycle around the whole populist idea of anti-government sentiment. I mean, it's always been there, and it just gets more vocal. It's a cycle. Well, it it does represent the triumph of science over politics, which doesn't happen all that often anymore, apparently. (laughs) Um, And it also illustrates how desperate people become when they're really, really between a rock and a hard place that they'll almost listen to anything. Sure. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 473rd show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. The producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Sapp Sapital. My name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guests, Ed Broders, retired farmer and ROI history buff, and Jen Broders, teacher at Pleasant Valley Middle School. We've been talking about the Cedar County Cow Wars of 1931. The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Brett Menard. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all listeners to experience the great Pasutu proverb, Hotsa Pulinala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.